0: Please open your Bibles that you've brought with you this morning to the book of Romans. If you're using the the Pew Bibles in front of you, we are on page 941 this morning. 941 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31 is our text this Lord's Day. And we will be making our way through the end of chapter 3 this morning. And then in two weeks, we will begin chapter four. Next week, we will uh, have a one-week hiatus from the book of Romans as Paul Forget from Rock Creek Bible Church in Congerville will be here ministering the word of God to you. And I will be over in Congerville at Rock Creek doing a a pulpit swap. And so that is a a bittersweet thing for me. I don't look forward to being away uh, from here, but but I do love Pastor Paul, and I'm very eager uh, for you to hear from, from him next week. And so this morning we will finish up chapter 3 and cover verses 27 through 31. Once you've found your place there, please stand with me if you are able. Out of respect for God as his word is read to his people this morning. The God of the universe speaks to his people through his word and so might we give it our full attention this morning. He says this to us. In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but brethren, the word of our Lord remains forever. Amen. He may be seated. If you remember back to last week, we covered verses 21 through 26, which, by the way, is arguably one of the most important paragraphs ever written, where the Apostle Paul unpacks the doctrine of justification by faith, justification by faith. And hopefully, by this point, we're all on the same page with, with what the doctrine of justification by faith is. We've discussed, discussed this several times so far in the first three chapters but just by way of summary again this morning uh, one of my goals for us as as a church is that we are able we talked about this a little bit in sunday school that that we are able to articulate very key doctrines of the christian faith we talked about the importance this morning in, in sunday school about the importance of being able to articulate the gospel how important that is for us as believers to be able to articulate the gospel and and it is another one of my goals for us to be able to articulate the doctrine of justification by faith. Very easily and succinctly. And when I say easily, I just mean it comes almost as second nature. It's natural to us. And by succinctly, I mean it just in a few sentences. It's my hope that all of us very easily and succinctly would be able to articulate the doctrine of justification by faith if just some random person on the street were to ask us what this means. And if we're not there yet, that's okay. Hopefully this morning we'll we'll continue to help move the needle forward ever so slightly in, in this regard. And so, just by way of summary again this morning, justification by faith, as we have seen in the text so far, is the doctrine that accounts for how we are made right with God. God is holy. cannot be in the presence of sin. And yet man is sinful, inherently sinful. So how can sinful man be reconciled to right relationship with a holy God? And as it's been clear from the text, this is not by works. This happens apart from works of the law. But it happens as God declares sinners righteous, accounts them as righteous because they have received the righteousness of Christ by faith. They believe in Jesus and His righteousness is imputed to them. It covers them. They wear it like a robe that has been embroidered onto their bodies, never to be removed. The stitching never unravels. The thread never wears thin, but remains bound to them for eternity." And now when God looks, as it were, at His people, those whom He has chosen to save, what He sees, metaphorically speaking, is the robe of His Son's righteousness. If you are a Christian, it is because you've been justified, made right with God, by faith and faith alone. And even this faith is not a work but rather the means by which we rest and receive Jesus and His righteousness. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. And Paul is going to continue to unpack this a bit further. As we've mentioned before, he does this all the way through chapter 11. Paul is working towards this unpacking and explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ as it relates to resting and receiving Jesus and His righteousness by faith alone And then all the implications thereof. But this morning, Paul pauses for a brief moment to give us three applications, if you will, from the doctrine of justification by faith. Paul says, in a way, I'm not done here yet. We're going to return to this. But for a moment, I want to give you three brief results. Three so what's from what I've been telling you thus far And this is what these five verses are doing this morning. And so the main idea, if we can summarize it in one sentence this morning, there are three separate applications, but these are all summarized by this one main idea. And you'll see this in your worship folder. Christians don't obey the law to be justified. Rather, they obey the law because they are justified. Christians don't obey the law to be justified. Rather, we obey the law because we are justified justified and we will unpack more of what this means as we go but hopefully from the start this is clear where we are headed and there are three headings that we will operate under this morning our pride is unauthorized our god is undivided our law is upheld we will see the unauthorization of our pride from verses 27 through 28 The reality that our God is undivided from verses 29 and 30, and the idea that our law is upheld from verse 31. And so, like is our custom here, we will just walk through these points one by one, starting with our pride is unauthorized. Verses 27 through 28 again read like this What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Hopefully by now we are getting quite accustomed to the Apostle Paul. His, his delivery, the way he writes, his style, the methods that he, deplo- that he deploys. And, and hopefully we see him ask yet another hypothetical question in verse 27. And we understand it to be not so much hypothetical but what actually may be running through the minds of his hearers. Paul has as a knack, as we've seen, for anticipation, for anticipating the next line of thinking from those he is writing to. And here, verse 27, he turns to this question. What then becomes of our boasting? What then becomes of our boasting? In other words, do I have any reason to boast Paul, is there even the slightest reason for me to pat myself on the back with regard to my right standing with God? What role does my pride play? I don't know if many of you are are puzzlers. Anyone enjoy a a good puzzle on a a rainy day? Puzzles are underrated and underappreciated, I believe, especially in our digital age. More and more, the digital age is seeking to to rob everything simple in life. Well, when you put a puzzle together, there are important pieces to the puzzle. The the idiom that we use has its origin in the actual activity. There are important pieces to the puzzle. One might argue that the four corner pieces, if you're working with a, a traditional puzzle, the four corner pieces are of most importance. And the next most important are the border pieces, maybe, you would say. The pieces that outline the puzzle. Next are the pieces that, that fill in the center of the puzzle. And, and then there's a fourth category that we could add. And I'm sure we could add more than, than these four categories, but there, there are the, at least these four. The, the fourth category, I would say, personally, is the most important piece to the puzzle. And that is the last piece. Whatever piece that ends up being. And and growing up, we would always fight over who got to be the one to put in the final piece of the puzzle because the puzzle isn't complete until you put in the final piece. And so, of course, it only took me one or two puzzles to learn that um, you just have to take a piece of the puzzle and put it in your pocket and you're always guaranteed to be the last one to put the last piece in. I know I'm not the only maniac in the room. Well, in the text... It is as if Paul's listeners are saying, what piece to the salvation puzzle does my pride say play? What piece to the puzzle does my pride play? Is my boasting the final piece to the puzzle? Is it the most important piece in the box? Paul says, no way. Okay, it's the corner piece then, right? No. Alright, well then, I must find my pride along the border. No, it is excluded from the box entirely. Our pride is nowhere to be seen on the picture of salvation. There is absolutely no reason for us to boast in ourselves. Patting ourselves on the back is not the posture of someone saved by Christ. There is a biblical way to respond to your salvation with your hand against your body. But it is not with an open hand to your back. It is with a closed fist to your chest. Like the man who went up to pray and stood far off and beat his chest with a contrite and humble spirit. But there is no place for pride with regard to our right standing before God. And frankly, it's because we don't have a single thing to be prideful for. The great American theologian of the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, said it this way, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin to make it necessary. And it's like Paul is saying to the saints in Rome, is this something you want to boast about? Your sin? No. Boasting, pride, it is excluded completely. Faith is self renouncing. Faith by nature looks outside of oneself. And works are self congratulatory, they by nature look inward and produce pride. Paul says our boasting is completely excluded and has no place in a Christian's life with regard to how they came to be reconciled back to a holy God. Paul goes on then in verse 27 and says, okay, boasting is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Now it's important to understand what he is saying here. It's important here first to recognize what Paul is referring to when he uses the word law here. What then comes our boasting? Is it excluded? Or it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Paul has, has previously used, as we've already seen in the first three chapters, the word law as it relates to the moral law. Summarized in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. We've also seen him use the word law to refer to the Old Testament as a whole, the law and the prophets. And so which of these two uses of the word law does Paul have in mind here? And the answer is neither. There is yet a third sense in which Paul uses the word law. The the sense in which Paul uses the Greek word namos, law, Is unique here to the previous two senses. Here, the word law is not referring to the moral law as summarized in the Ten Commandments, nor is he referring to the entire Old Testament as a whole. Here, he's referring to the concept of a principle or a rule. And so, with that in mind, and you read it with that in mind, it certainly makes sense. Our boasting is excluded. By what kind of principle? By the principle of works? No, but by the principle of faith. That is what Paul is saying here. Because we have faith in Christ, because faith is naturally outward focused because faith by principle is self-renouncing, because faith naturally looks outside of oneself, there's no reason to boast. It's by the very principle of faith that we may not boast because we're no longer concerned with our own abilities or accomplishments. And when that is true, when we are based upon a principle or a law of faith, our boasting is absolutely and necessarily excluded. He goes on to say in verse 28 as a way to just continue to pound this into their heads for we hold. That one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There is a huge hole, a a giant gap, a, a vast gulf that makes the Grand Canyon look like child's play. A vast gulf that knows no bottom. Try to picture that. A vast gulf that knows no bottom. A huge chasm that has no boundary. That if you were to fly over this this huge hollow, all you would see is abyss to the north and the south. This is the distance between you and God because of your sin. And what bridged this gap, if you are a Christian, was no work of the law done by you. That would be like sending my almost two-year-old son, Brooks, out with his plastic hammer to help the construction crew build the McCluggage Bridge. But rather, the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart granted you the gift of faith, accounted you righteous in His sight through your faith in Christ. And that vast distance between you and God was bridged in an instant. But it was bridged by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. One final note from verse 28 before we move on in the text to our next heading our God is undivided notice the, the the second word in verse 28 we hold second and third words I guess in the English but in the Greek this is one word we hold for we hold that one is justified by faith we hold to that that is what we believe In other words, that is what Christians believe. This is Christian doctrine. We believe, we hold that one is justified by faith. There is no other holding to hold to and remain to the bounds of Christian doctrine. Either we hold to this doctrine or we lose our grip on Christianity. There isn't justification by faith and then a whole other host of ways to be made right with God. There isn't justification by faith and then a whole host of other ways to make it to heaven. There isn't even justification by faith and then one single other way to be right with God or pathway to glory. This is what we must hold to. We, the church. This is what Covenant Community Church must hold to. This is what Chillicothe Bible Church must hold to. This is what St. Mark Lutheran Church must hold to. This is what St. Edward's Catholic Church must hold to. And if we don't, if you reject justification by faith, if this is not what we hold to, then you are not one of us. You're not a true church. You're not a biblical church. You're not a church that is teaching the gospel truth. This is what makes me very concerned with even people close and churches close to our own community that may or may not be holding to this, but rather seem rather content beating the bridge with their plastic hammer? M- might the Lord provide context and relationships and opportunities to show them how futile of an endeavor this is? Because again, we, we don't approach this as some puffed, puffed up way of saying that, that we've arrived at right theology. That's not what we're saying. We're acknowledging our boasting is excluded. Our pride is unauthorized. And we fully lean on Jesus' name. That's what our doctrine advocates for. Us fully leaning on Jesus' name. Our pride is completely and utterly unauthorized. Moving on to the text to our God is undivided. Verses 29-30 through again read like this. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Rob Ventura notes here that there's both a a practical point and a theological point that Paul is seeking to unpack here in verses 29-30. through Theologically, we've already seen this. He's he's unpacked this already, hasn't he? That that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. None is righteous, not even one. There isn't a, a single people group. There isn't even a single person that is righteous in themselves. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All Jews and Gentiles are desperate for God to save them. And that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. And all are justified apart from the law. All are justified by faith. There is one way to salvation. There isn't a a Jewish way and a Gentile way. God is one. There is one way to salvation. And much like you can't divide the essence of God, you can't divide the different ways to him. There's only one way. The, The circumcised, the Jews, are justified by faith. And the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, a.k.a. everyone not Jewish, are justified by faith. And this has always been the plan of God to reconcile lost sinners to Himself by and through their faith in Jesus Christ. If you're really paying attention, you may have noticed that um, by and through are both used here. That it says that the, 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 um, the uncircumcised are saved. The circumcised are saved by faith. And the uncircumcised are justified through faith. By and through, two two different words, but they're interchangeable, both meaning the, the same thing. There is one way of salvation. One way to be accounted as righteous before God. And it's the answer to the question, do you stand in the last Adam? Do you stand in Jesus Christ? Do you stand in His righteousness? Does His righteousness cover you by faith? This is the one way of justification. And it's the the theological point that Paul continues to seek to strengthen as he goes here. But then there's a a practical point that he's seeking to make as well. A a practical implication that, that certainly can be made. And I think he's attacking the idea of racial or ethnic segregation. Racial or ethnic segregation. You see the Jews, some of them thought the Gentiles were dogs. Second class humans. And likewise, there were were Gentiles that that hated the Jews. There was a propensity in the ancient Near East to to segregate according to race or culture or ethnicity. I think we see this most clearly in Paul's letter to Galatia. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. It says this, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Can't be more clear than that. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It is clear that Paul is attacking this idea of racial or ethnic or cultural superiority. One group is not it. Rather, we are all one in Christ. Jew or Gentile, as much as you may hate each other, you are one in Christ. Now, Paul is not saying that there's never an appropriate time to recognize racial or ethnic differences. He he isn't saying just pretend not to be different. The the whole idea of I don't see color in our culture, it's, it's kind of nonsense drawn out to its logical conclusions would require us to be gender blind too i don't see male or female we're we're all one in christ and obviously the argument stops pretty fast in its tracks there what paul is is saying is that your ethnic or your your cultural realities don't give you a head up on every other culture ethnic or reality we are one in christ And so don't elevate your your culture or your ethnicity in such a way that that segregates other cultures or ethnicities. And so here's my question for us this morning. Did did this propensity die in the ancient Near East? No shot. We we still struggle with this in our culture today. Now, look around you. We are mostly white. A, A few Hispanics in the room but largely a white congregation. Now, is that a bad thing? Is that bad? No. We are just simply ministering the gospel in the community God has placed us in. And then, hopefully, Lord willing, we are conducting our ministry in, in such a way that the means of grace are what do the work. That the Bible, the bread, the cup, The waters of baptism, these things transcend culture and context. And so we would love folks from other ethnic backgrounds to join us, but wouldn't it be a direct violation of this text to, to champion ourselves, covenant community church, the white church? Like, how unhealthy is that? But that goes for all ethnicities. The black church, the Hispanic church, it's not healthy. It's not biblical. We don't rally around our skin color on Sunday morning. We rally around Christ. Amen. We are one in Him. We all stand in the same desperate need of Him. Early church father Christostom noted it this way in his, verses, his homilies on these verses. He says, both Jew and Gentile stand completely alike in their need of faith. Our God is undivided. Our pride is unauthorized. Our God is undivided. Let us spend the the remainder of our time this morning considering the last of these three applications of the doctrine of justification by faith under the heading, Our Law is Upheld. Verse 31 again reads like this Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, We uphold the law. Paul here switches his use of the law again. Kind of hard to keep track at times. Here he's no longer referring to to the concept or the rule or principle of the law, but here he goes back to referring to the moral law. The moral law that is written on the hearts of men and eventually etched in stone on the Ten Commandments. This is the law that he's referring to here. And, and the question he is posing, phrased another way, is what do we do with morality? What do we do with the Ten Commandments that, that summarize morality for us? How should we engage with and interact with such a law? Obedience to the law, following the Ten Commandments, is not how we're justified before God in the covenant of grace. We get that. Rather, we're justified apart from the works of the law. We see our sin when we look into this mirror, as we've talked about. When we look into the mirror that is the law of God, we see our sin. We know we can't get clean by continuing to stare into this mirror. We need to go somewhere else to get clean in order to be justified. We need faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. We hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Okay, we get all this. We get all this, but then what do we do with the law? Do we overthrow it? In other words, do we just just throw it out? Do we ignore it? What do we do here? What is the proper use of the law? Are, Are you saying that because we are not justified by the law, that the law is void of purpose entirely in the Christian's life? Paul's answer from verse 31, we've seen him answer it this way, and we will see it again as we continue. By no means an emphatic, as an emphatic answer as he can possibly muster, no. That is not the proper implication at all. That is not even remotely close to what I am advocating. Actually, quite the opposite. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You see, Christians don't obey the law to be justified. They obey the law because they are justified. Neither legalism nor antinomianism, and yes, I'm going to define these terms in just a second, Neither legalism nor antinomianism is the right answer to the question, what do we do with the law? What is the proper use of the law? Neither legalism adding to the law, nor antinomianism taking from the law, anti, against, namas, law, antinomian, neither adding to the law nor taking from the law, Faithfully represents what Paul is advocating for here. Legalism and antinomianism are what some have called evil twins. They are both grave errors. On the one hand, the legalist wants to add a bunch of extra things to the law, and on the other hand, the antinomian wants to take a bunch of things from the law. But both are dangerous, both are harmful. And really, if we're honest, these two things are fighting for everything. Every doctrine, every church matter, legalism and antinomianism are fighting for everything. It doesn't just apply to the doctrine of justification or to the law. Take, for example, a very low-hanging fruit here, alcohol. Antinomianism says, ah, who cares what the Bible says? The Bible says don't get drunk with wine, but you're not justified by works, and so go ahead, let your hair down from time to time. Have one too many. That's evil. That's taking away from the Bible something that it is clearly stated, do not get drunk with wine. But what is equally evil on the other side is the legalist that says all alcohol consumption is sinful. And therefore, you should never drink any alcohol because the Bible prohibits it. But the reality is that's nowhere in the Bible. Do do Christians have freedom to drink in moderation or to choose to completely abstain from drinking? Yes, of course. Christians have both of those liberties. Everyone should search their conscience and act accordingly. Both perspectives glorify God. But the moment we start saying it's always sinful to consume, we're adding something to the Bible that it doesn't say, and that's legalism. And as soon as we start saying, nah, get as drunk as you want whenever you want, that's anti-law. It's taking something the Bible has made so abundantly clear and removing it. Both legalism and antinomianism are equally dangerous ditches. Picture yourself on a walk on a long country road the, the ground is straight and narrow. The path is easily recognizable and, and safe for you. But on either side of this path, as you look down, there is a steep ditch. You look to the right, steep ditch. You look to the left, steep ditch. And if you take your eyes off of the path, you're going to veer into one of these ditches. The Christian life is the pathway. On the one side of the pathway is an evil ditch of legalism that seeks to pull you off the path. On the other side is an equally evil ditch of antinomianism that seeks to pull you in its direction. Both butting up to the path of righteousness, both showing their teeth, both ready to pounce. And what Paul is saying here is that even though the law is not what saves you, legalism, the law is not just thrown away in your life, antinomianism. The law is not how you earn your way to God. However, a Christian does not just ignore the law after they come to Christ. Rather, they uphold it. They view it rightly. They obey it. They submit to it. They love it. They delight in it. Not in order to be justified, but because they are justified. You see, good works do not result in justification, but good works are the result of justification. And there are some who say, nah, you, you have to do this, you have to do that in order to be saved. And they're reaching up from their legalistic ditch. And there are some who say, nah, you just do whatever you want. You're, you're justified by faith, not works, and so just toy with whatever sin your heart desires. And they're pulling at you from their antinomian ditch on the other side. I'll try to give you a, a picture of this. Flowing from the fountain of our salvation in Christ is an ever-growing stream of good works. Flowing from the fountain of our salvation in Christ is an ever-flow, ever-growing stream of good works. But our good works never make it upstream. They're, they're never the source. Our good works are not the cause of our justification, but our good works certainly are the consequence of our justification. Our good works do not result in justification, but our good works are the result of justification. Good works are always missing in the justification of a Christian, but good works are never missing in a Christian who has been justified. Christians don't obey the law to be justified, they obey the law because they are justified. Good works do not produce justification, rather good works are the produce of our justification. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 7. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. In other words, every justified tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The diseased tree being those who stand in their own righteousness. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree, does that, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then Jesus says it again in verse 20. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not they have become this way by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. God does not recognize them by their fruits, but you will recognize them by their fruits. Do you, do you see the difference there? You're not recognized in the sight of God by our fruit. We're we're recognized in the sight of God by the fruit of Jesus Christ alone. And then what that fruit of Christ does every single time is display itself in the life of a justified saint. The justified are recognizable by their fruit, by their good works. In other words, their obedience to the law of God. This is what displays to the world that they are indeed a justified one. Their fruit doesn't cause their justification, but their fruit is a necessary consequence of their justification. So this morning I ask, what is growing on the tree of your life? Is it good fruit? 1 John 3, 6 says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. In other words, good trees don't bear bad fruit. The gospel is not bear this fruit and you will live, but the gospel is if you are truly alive, you will bear this fruit. You will obey this law. You will be marked by obedience. Complete obedience? Always bearing good fruit in every circumstance? No. There will be pruning that needs to be done until the Lord returns in all of our lives. And there will be seasons in which the pruning is more intense and therefore the fruit grows in more abundance. And there will be seasons in which the growth is slow, but there will be fruit. Unless Jesus is a liar, we will recognize them by their fruit. Not that we are justified by the law, but do we just throw it out? What do we do with the law? What's the proper use of the law. We just throw it away? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We obey the law. We prove our justification by our obedience. We, we love to keep the law as Christians. We delight in law-keeping. The law is sweeter to our soul than honey is to our lips. The law is like gold. Much fine gold. Precious to us. Cherished by us. The, The law is a gift to show us how to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so we obey not to be justified. But we obey because we are justified. Amen, church? Let's pray.